Let us pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for gathering us in this place this morning uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, we just pray, God, that just as new life rose up from the grave that day, so also new life would fall down from heaven on this day, we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this and all God's people said, amen. Happy Easter. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to worship at Christ Lutheran Church. For those of you who are uh, new to Christ Lutheran Church, I'm Pastor Garrett Seamson, and I, uh, this is actually my first indoor service. Um, two years ago is when I showed up. We had online Easter Sunday, and then last year we were sitting outside in the parking lot getting blasted by the sun, if you remember that. And so it's really good to be back actually indoors celebrating uh, Christ with you all this morning. Uh, so grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, my wife's name is Christy, and she and I got married in 2014. Uh, and up until that point, she had lived her entire life in the state of Arizona. Uh, Scottsdale in particular is where she grew up. And then I grew up here in Santa Clarita. And I share that because uh, only to say we are both kind of like warm weather people. That's what we like, right? Uh, and so naturally, just a few months after we got married, we moved to a very tropical city called Pittsburgh. I don't know if you've been to Pittsburgh, or maybe you've watched a Steelers game in the month of December. Like, it is anything but tropical, right? And so I remember our first year there, the month of October in particular, uh, it started to get kind of cold. And there was this one week in mid-October, the high each day was 47 degrees. I was like, come on, that's not that horrible, Pastor. Not that bad, right? But you see, the reason I mention that is for the next six months, literally six months, it never got above 47 degrees. And in fact, it tended to get quite a bit colder and colder and colder to the point the month of February, it never got above 15. Fahrenheit, that is, by the way. Um, all the while, everything outside was dead. There were no more flowers. There were no more, no more leaves. There was barely any sun. It was like, oh my goodness, why did we move here, right? Maybe you're wondering the same thing. So we got called to a church there just to explain that piece, like... Anyway, why do we move here? Because our first year there, they ended up having the worst winter they had had in over a hundred years. And yet what eventually happened is Palm Sunday that year. Um, so this is like the week before Easter, right? It's right at the beginning of, of April is when it was. We woke up in the morning and it was just beautiful. Sun actually came out. All of a sudden it felt warm outside. You could actually feel the sun on your skin. We looked at the temperature gauge. What do you think the temperature was? 47. <laughs> you Midwesterners already know, right? I heard you say 47. I'm like, God, ah, you beat me to the punch. Uh, which back in October felt miserable, but by God, April, it was amazing, right? Uh, so we got home from church services that day. We flung the windows open. We put on shorts and t-shirts. And that week, it just got warmer and warmer and warmer to the point that on Easter Sunday, it was low 70s. And I kid you not, by then, flowers had started to push up from the ground there were buds on all of the trees. There were literally uh, bunnies running across our backyard on Easter morning, literal Easter bunnies, right? Uh, you go to the church and there were butterflies all around the parking lot. No exaggeration, Easter that year was literally the most beautiful day I've ever seen in my life. And so Easter services that morning, what do you think they were like? They were bursting with joy, right? As you can imagine, they were just bursting with joy. Uh, people were singing, they were smiling, like, oh my goodness, people in Pittsburgh smile? Like, we didn't know that. Sorry. Uh, I think everyone felt happier and more hopeful than they had ever felt in their lives. And you see, right in the midst of this incredibly joyful worship experience, I had this thought crop up in my mind. It's not a good thought. I'm just going to warn you. I had this thought, oh crap, 
All we're doing right now is celebrating spring. <laughs> Literally, this is not about Jesus. It's about bunnies and butterflies and budding flowers and beautiful weather and whatever other bee you want to add to that list, perhaps even including actual bees, right? It's part of it too. Um, and you see, what it emphatically felt like is Easter had become just a big celebration of spring. And so kind of the curmudgeonly Christian in me, there's a curmudgeonly Christian in most of us, I would argue. Um, the one in me wanted to get up there and say, no, right? Like, just stop. That's not what this is about. In fact, it has nothing to do with that. Am I right? Feels like a trick question, doesn't it? Uh, so at least in that moment, I thought I was totally right. And yet, here's the conclusion I came to later. No, I wasn't right. And actually, Easter has everything to do with that. Bunnies, butterflies, buds on trees. That's what Easter is about. Sounds like I'm being facetious, right? I'm not. I'm you see, because what are all those things pointing to? I would suggest they're pointing to new life. And what is Easter about, after all, if not new life? And so not to be misheard on this front, I am not saying that Easter is really just a big celebration of spring. I'm not saying that. And yet what I am saying is you can just flip that order around and you're saying something profoundly true. Meaning that spring is, in fact, creation celebration of Easter. And what I mean by that is the God who created this world wrote into the very nature, uh, nature of it that right after everything dies, there's going to be a beautiful hint at the truth we are here to celebrate this morning. Namely, that there is such a thing as resurrection, that there is such a thing as new life, that there is such a thing as a man named Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and conquered the grave. And that when he did, one of the first things he did is he began to make people new. And so you see, what I'm trying to say is as great and glorious as spring can be. And it, I love spring, okay? It is great and glorious. All of it, however, is just a faint whisper at something that is far greater and more glorious. Namely, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new life that he gives to his people. As you go to our passage that we had read this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking that. Um, what it is in this passage, Christ has just been raised from the dead. And what he immediately begins doing, you see this in the passage, he begins making his people new. And I think if we pay close attention to the passage, there are three things in particular that the risen Christ gives the disciples. There are four things. However, it's a really long sermon with four. So we're going to look at three things in particular, um, all of which kind of constitute this thing we call new life. And what they are, if I can name them and then we'll get into them, they're his presence, his peace, and his power. Those three things. So I just want to go through each of those. Just to start with the first one, Christ gives us his presence. So what happens in the passage, it's just a couple days after the crucifixion of Christ. And at this point, the disciples don't know that he's been raised, right? They've gone to the empty tomb, but they're like, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and so they're hiding in this inner room. Blinds are totally drawn. The door is totally locked. And yet what happened is Christ just enters into the room. And stands in the midst of them. And one thing to point out, how did he get in there? How did he get in there? He doesn't unlock the door, right? And swing it open like, I'm back. No. 
Nor does he like bang on it and beg like, please, it's Jesus. Let me in, let me in. That's not what happens, right? No, the door is just locked. And next thing you know, he's standing in the middle of the room. It's like, how did you get in here? Which obviously it's a miracle. Yet the thing about miracles in the Bible is they're always communicating something. They're always full of meaning. See, the Bible doesn't even use the word miracles. It uses this word signs. And the thing about signs, signs are meant to signify something, right? I mean, they're meant to say or communicate something to us. And so the question is, what is it saying that Christ is able to get past locked doors? It's going to sound weird, but it's saying that the risen Christ is able to get past whatever barriers we put up. So let me try to explain that. It's able to get past our barriers. Uh, so one thing about this, I would contend that all of us have an inner room. And what it is, it's what the Bible refers to as our heart. Uh, that word is laced throughout the Bible. You see it everywhere. It talks about the heart. And I know that word heart is loaded with different connotations, many of which are unhelpful, right? You know, what the Bible means by that word heart, it's not just your emotions, right? That's what we typically think it is, but it's not just that. Uh, it does include that, but that's not all of it. And so the way the Bible uses the word heart is much more comprehensive than that. And so it's not just your feelings, but it's also your thoughts, for instance. All the things you think throughout the day, many of which no one else knows, that's your heart. It's also your desires and your dreams, it's your wounds and your worries. It's your affections. It's also your anxieties. It's the gifts you have that no one else sees. You have gifts that no one else knows about. That's your heart. It's the intentions you have that no one understands. That's also part of your heart. It's the disappointments you feel that you can't even explain to other people. That's your heart. It is the deepest part of who you are. Everything that makes you you, that is your heart. It's this inner room in which the real you resides. And you see, the issue that we see, not only throughout Scripture, but also just in our lives, uh, is the door to that room is locked. What I mean by that is no matter what, there's always a certain inaccessibility to the human heart. In other words, no one fully knows your heart. Right? So a bunch of different studies have been showing that ever since 2007, uh, levels of uh, depression and loneliness have skyrocketed in America. And that's true across the board. Like, no matter your age or generation, those levels have gone up. Uh, but it's true in particular among teens. I mentioned this two weeks ago, in fact. Uh, but since 2007, teens in particular, depression and loneliness have skyrocketed. And it's like, oh my goodness, what is happening to this generation, right? Like, what happened in 2007? You reach in your pocket, you've got a demon in there. <laughs> and that's what happened in 2007. It was the launch of the iPhone. And ever since that happened, uh, there have been two kind of main issues that have been deeply detrimental to the human heart. Uh, one of them is a theological issue, and the other is a sociological issue. So I want to touch on both of these this morning, uh, just briefly. Uh, but the theological issue, issue is it used to be that even just 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, Every day just had kind of built into it these brief periods of time where you couldn't literally do anything. It was wild, right? You get stuck at a light, you'd be standing in line. And I know this is a totally new concept for anyone over the age of 25, but there was this thing that we used to call boredom. <laughs> and it was amazing, right? 
Uh, you couldn't even distract yourself out of it. There's nothing. Sometimes you literally just have to stare at a blank wall. Like, <laughs> like do you remember counting dots on the ceiling? Like, and maybe that sounds horrible to you. However, what that, what that built-in silence and solitude kind of created for us uh, was the margin and the space, and this is no guarantee, right? It's not like we're going to definitely use it this way, uh, but what it did create for us was the opportunity to be still and to know that God is God. Meaning you could think about your life. You can meditate on particular truths. You could actually pray and commune with your creator. Whereas now we just look at our phones. Seems like a bad trade, if you ask me. So that's the theological issue. It's really closed us off from God. The sociological issue is it's really closed us off from each other. See, what studies have picked up on is how social media has become kind of a substitute for real relationship. What I mean by that is it tends to present itself as a way of like having friendships and interacting with other people. And yet what these studies show is it doesn't have anywhere near the same effect as real in-person interactions have. And a big part of the problem, um, you can go on social media and maybe the first thing you notice when you go on there is, oh my goodness, not a single one of us is really struggling, suffering, or sad. Uh, Much less is anyone a sinner, by the way. It's amazing. Instead, all of us seem to have a perfect life, a pretty face, and a pure heart. Uh, Not to mention, you've got a perfect marriage, perfect kids, a perfect home. I have seen your life. It's amazing. All of which means it's not your life. Or to put it more specifically, all of which means it's not you on there. It's not me either, right? I'm not the only one, like, or you're not the only one. We're all kind of part of this. It's not us on there. Instead, it's just an image of us behind and beneath which there is a real person who, at least in the context of social media, remains relatively unknown. And so what these studies show is the more and more time we spend on screens, the less and less happy we are. It's like, why does it make us unhappy? Can't we just do it and it's not going to affect us? No, uh, because we were made to be known. God himself made us to be known. And it's increasingly the case that we're not. Now, the thing is, I'm not bringing this up to just kind of like shame us off our phones, right? Like, that's my goal. That's not my goal. Um, although I am a big proponent of going back to flip phones. So if you want to join that party, it's... <laughs> uh, but that's not the point I want to make this morning. Instead, I'm just using our phones as an example of a phenomenon that's been part of the human story forever. See, if you go back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were originally created naked, is what it says. Um, What that's meant to convey is they were actually fully known. They were totally transparent. There was nothing hidden. And yet the second they fall, you've read this passage, what is the first thing they do? They hide. They put up barriers and they lock the door. Go to today's passage. What are the disciples doing? They're hiding. They've put up a barrier and they've locked the door. You and I, we come in here this morning. What are we doing? Part of us is hiding. (laughs) We still put up barriers and lock doors. We project particular images, the result of which is none of us is fully known. All people can see is the image we put out there, which even if we try to make it as accurate as possible, we try to be totally transparent and honest with people, there's still no way for someone to access your inner thoughts and know your deepest self. And so in spite of the fact that we are created to be known 
to be known, no one really knows your heart. Except who? Jesus. The risen Christ. You see, the fact that he gets past the locked doors in this passage, it's meant to say that he fully knows you. In other words, he sees what no one else sees. He understands what no one else understands. He has access to things that no one else has access to. And you see, that is the first part of being new. It's being known by the risen Christ. And don't get me wrong, we can push him out of the room, right? The disciples can be like, whoa, get out of here. We can push him out. He's not going to force this on us. And yet I would say, I would like to suggest that one of the greatest gifts he offers us is in fact his presence. Let's go to the second thing. It's his peace. He gives us his peace. Uh, so one of the terms sociologists have been using lately is they'll refer to it as the outrage economy, is what they call it, outrage economy. And what they mean by that are news networks in particular. The way they make money is by trying to get the biggest audience possible, right? It's kind of the obvious part. We all know that more audience equals more advertising dollars. So that makes sense. And yet what's maybe less obvious is what tends to draw a bigger audience. It's whatever makes us mad. It's weird, right? And the thing is, they've kind of picked up on this. In order to capitalize on it, they're intentionally creating news that's meant to make you infuriated. Like, that's their goal. You should know that. And so what sociologists have pointed out is one of the things that's just kind of prevailed upon our culture is what I think you could call a spirit of blame and accusation. Uh, Meaning we don't even try to understand each other anymore. You do these interviews of Republicans and Democrats, and they try to explain what the other side thinks and believes. It is so wildly inaccurate. We don't even try to understand. We especially don't give people the chance to explain their motives. Instead of that, we just are incredibly quick to pounce and pass judgment now. It's become kind of our culture as a whole, right? Which, by the way, the sky is also blue. The Pope is Catholic, and I talk really fast in sermons. (laughs) All of which is obvious, right? Like, duh, we see it. And what is maybe less obvious on this front is it's not just on a national scale that this exists. That spirit of blame and accusation, that is. You see, for a lot of people, it's their home life. It's a place of blame and accusation. For a lot of other people, that's their church. It's where people are quick to pounce and pass judgment, often without even knowing the facts. For others, that's their work life. For almost all of us, it's our inner life. Meaning we blame and beat ourselves up. The thing about this seems new, but it's not anything new. Just like the whole hiding piece that we just looked about, going back to Adam and Eve, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Meaning you go back to that story of Adam and Eve, and the second they fall, not only do they hide, but the first thing Adam does is he points the finger at Eve and he says, this woman whom you gave to me, it's like the classic bad husband move, right? And what is he doing? He is blaming and accusing. And so you see, in spite of the fact that God made us to know and love each other, that's how we're made. In spite of the fact that God made us to be known and loved by each other, the world that we have inherited from Adam is a world where there is a ton of accusation and very little grace the result of which is there is little to no peace in that inner room that is our heart. 
And yet here's the thing. You go to our passage. Christ enters the room. What is the first thing he says? He says to the disciples, he says, peace be with you. I don't know whether you knew this. Uh, James and John, they were Lutheran, so they said in response, and also with you, Jesus. Uh, sorry, it's a bad joke. Anyway, no. Um, but if you just think about the context into which Christ is saying this, think about this context. Uh, what had just happened two days prior? Like, think back two days. What was the service in here two days ago? It was Good Friday, right? The crucifixion. And the thing about that, when Christ got put on a cross, every single one of the disciples had failed him. Peter, in particular, just totally denied knowing him three different times. Pretty much all the rest of them just kind of ran and hid. We don't know him either. Uh, John actually stuck around to watch, but he was not exactly defending the Lord. And so you see, all of that is to say, when they are sitting in that room, there is no peace. In fact, they're just kind of assuming that if they're found out, it's just going to be more finger pointing. It's going to be more blame and accusation. That's the world that they know. And yet when Christ finds them in that room, what does he say? He says, peace be with you. And then where does he point? Think about Adam pointing. Where does Christ point? He doesn't point at them. No, he points at his hands and his side. Meaning the marks of his crucifixion. And the reason he points there is right now, they're feeling a bunch of guilt and shame. And yet he is saying, essentially saying to them, guys on the cross, I took your guilt and shame. Like, don't hide from me. I didn't die just because of you. I died because I, I died for you. And so you see what that means when he, is, when he gets behind your locked doors, there is no judgment. Everything you blame yourself for, it's gone. He's taken that. All the mistakes that you've made, it's gone. He's taken that. Uh, the guilt that you carry around with you, it's gone. Everything that makes it impossible to have peace with God and peace with yourself, all of it is gone. He's taken it and he says, peace be with you. Why does he say that? Because this Jesus, whose opinion, by the way, is the only opinion that will reverberate and resound throughout eternity. Like other people's opinions don't really matter in comparison to this. And his particular opinion is that not only does he know you, but also he loves you. Fully known, fully loved. That's what this is saying. And so in his presence, you can have peace, profound peace. Uh, let's go to the third thing that's part of new life, which is having the power of Christ. Uh, just real quick before we get to that, I said that there were like four things. Uh, there's, a th- there's something kind of in between here that we're not totally addressing, but I want to mention it because I think it'll make sense of this next part. Um, but right after Christ says, peace be with you, what he says is, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. And what he's doing there is he's giving them his purpose. You see, God sent Christ into the world for a very particular purpose. And what it was, it was to bring his presence and peace back to a world that had lost it. That's what his whole mission was, to bring the presence and peace of God back to a world that had lost it. And so when he says in our passage, as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you, he's essentially saying, I'm giving you my presence and peace. I'm giving you that. So now go and be my presence and peace to a world that has lost it. Uh, Which sounds lovely and yet also proves to be impossible the second we try it. See, because we need another power. We need another power that's not our own. 
And so that's what I want to focus on. It's how to actually live a transformed life. And so the second Christ says he's sending them out to fulfill his purpose. He breathes into the, the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you just think one last time about Adam and Eve, go back to that passage from Genesis. Uh, how did God create them? If you're familiar with this, he breathed into them. And that was the original cre- creation after which we fell away from God and became a shell of what we were created to be. And yet back to today's passage, what does Christ do? He breathes into them. And what that's meant to convey is this is a new creation in which God has sought us out so that he can put his breath back in our lungs. So I shared this back in November on All Saints Sunday. Uh, that's when, on All Saints Sunday, that's when we remember those who have died. And in my mind, at least, there's a very natural link between All Saints Sunday and Easter Sunday, the day on which we remember those who have died and the day on which we remember the one who has risen, right? Those two things are linked. And so if this sounds familiar, that's where it comes from. Um, however, uh, when I was growing up, my dad was pretty much always sick. I shared that before in multiple sermons. My dad uh, had a body that I said was destined to die, is what it seemed like. Uh, he went through kidney failure in his 30s, which is a big Simpson family tradition. I have an uncle and a cousin who also... Went through kidney failure in the 30s. I'm 39. <laughs> Hoping to get to 40, right? <laughs> anyway, kidney failure in his 30s. He had a major heart attack in his 40s. And then he got diagnosed with cancer in his 50s. I think about the cancer in particular. It was just skin cancer, right? And it wasn't melanoma, which is like the really bad kind. It was just something called squamous cell carcinoma, if you're familiar with that. And if you're not, the one thing to know about it is it's not that bad. It's got a 99% survival rate, right? And so in my mind as a kid, I just kind of figured this is not a big deal. One more thing, dad's going to get passed. And yet what happened is because of the kidney transplant, he's on immunosuppressant drugs. It suppresses your immune system, right? And so he couldn't fight off anything on those drugs. And so over the course of my freshman year of high school, my dad just seemed to get sicker and sicker. And as you could imagine, 14-year-old brain, this is not making sense to me. Because on the one hand, I was just kind of assuming everything was going to be fine. On the other hand, it was definitely looking like my dad was going to the hospital more and more often. And the cancer was getting more and more comprehensive, I guess I'll say. It was just getting worse. Uh, so I'm just kind of in this uncertain state, not knowing what's happening. And this one night in particular, both my sisters were away at college at this point. And I was supposed to be up in, sta- up in my bedroom sleeping, right? I'm up in bed and I can hear my parents downstairs talking. And so what I did is I walked out of my room as quietly as possible and I went over to the edge of the landing so I could listen in on what they were saying. And what I heard in particular was my dad crying. I'd never heard him cry before. It's the only time I've heard him cry. He was just saying over and over again to my mom, I don't want to die. So as you can imagine, top of those stairs... My whole world is falling apart. And that ended up being just two months before he died. But you see, what happened during those two months is a family friend of ours invited us to church. It was like an outreach for them. Like, maybe you should come to church with us, right? We were struggling. And my dad actually um, came to church. And the bigger thing is he actually came to faith during that time. Maybe a better way to put it, actually more accurate would be he came back to faith. Uh, he'd been raised in the faith. He was, in faith, he was deeply formed by it. And I don't think he ever, ever uh, so much forsook it as he did get too busy, right? Which is a lot of people. So we were a Christmas and Easter family. 
And yet he came back is the main point. And one thing I'll say is the last two months of his life, he was incredibly different. In particular, he was alive in a very different way. You could just see it. And whereas I had never personally seen anything, I'm like, what's going on, right? Um, The New Testament talks all about this, all over the place. And one passage in particular, 2 Corinthians 4, it says that when Christ makes you new, what's going to happen is even though your outer man might be wasting away, your inner man is going to be renewed day by day. And that's what I was seeing, right? So witness to that. All the way to the point that on the day my dad died, that morning we walked into his room and when, we, when he saw us, he looked up and he just smiled. He was staring death in the face and he smiled. And not to be misheard. I'm not saying somehow now he wanted to die. Like, this is great. No. Um, with that smile for all of us was a ton of tears, Right? He didn't want to die. We did not want him to die. All I'm saying is now there was no fear. You see, because the spirit that God gives us is not a spirit of fear, but instead a spirit of power. That's what 2 Timothy says. And so in our passage, when the disciples receive the spirit, one of the biggest changes that happens for them is their fear goes away. Uh, Not just in regards to death, but also in regards to all the evil we face in this life, of which there is a lot. Uh, The disciples were not afraid, though. They were a new creation. They had the life of Christ inside of them, and that could not be touched by death. See, because what the Spirit inside had convinced them of is on the cross, Christ had died their death. That was not his death he was dying. It was ours on our behalf. And so the disciples with that, they went out and the same guys who were cowering in fear when Christ was crucified, now they willingly gave their lives for their faith. I know a lot of people be like, I don't believe in the resurrection. That's impossible. Uh, However, one thing you got to reckon with is 11 of the 12 disciples went from being absolutely terrified at one point to being absolutely courageous at another. It's like, what happened? They literally stared death in the face and they smiled My dad, he smiled, right? You see, because here's the thing. There is a joy that Christ gives his people in this thing we call new life. That's why Easter is joyful, right? It's the whole reason. And in particular, what that joy is, it's the joy of knowing that no evil can harm you. Did you know that? Like, no evil can harm you. That no death can undo you. That hell has been crushed. That Christ has been raised. And what that means is that you and I are free from any sort of fear. Like, what are you worried about right now, right? Guarantee you've got worries on your mind. I just want to tell you, Christ conquered those already. And so if you want to have the courage of Christ, receive the Holy Spirit is what he says. He will take away your fear. And when he does, what you will have then is not only his presence, not only his peace, but also his power. So if I can wrap this up, the first Easter we had in Pittsburgh, that beautiful Easter, uh, the sanctuary at the church there was decked out in flowers, just kind of similar to this. It was decked out in flowers and kind of the tradition of the church there. You could go up if you were there after the last service and, oh man, I might be creating a tradition right now. Uh Uh-oh, I should see sacred space, sorry. Don't come get the flowers, we got to clear that. Um, But the tradition there, okay, uh, was people after the service, they would go and you would take the flowers home with you. And then what you would do is you would go plant the bulbs of those flowers into your yard. And so that year, we took quite a few of the hyacinths home in particular. If you remember that flower, my wife loves those. Uh, so we put them all over our front yard. And the thing about them, they're perennials, right? 
They're perennials. And so what that means is as long as they're planted in good soil, that's like the only caveat. You put it in soil, every spring we were there, they would sprout up and they would produce this beautiful flower. And every time it happened, we were there six years, every time it happened, it would be this absolutely beautiful reminder of that first Easter we had had. So here's the thing about that. Uh, One of the most common metaphors in the New Testament for the gospel of Christ is that it is like a seed scattered on the soil of human nature, the human heart. See that throughout the scriptures. In other words, everything Christ offers to make us new that we've just been talking about, right? His presence, his peace, his power, his purpose, all of that is like the bulb of a beautiful flower. And as long as that bulb is planted in good soil, it's the only caveat, meaning a heart that is not hard. That's all it is. Heart that is not hard is good soil. And what will happen is that message will sink into the soul of a believer and it will begin to produce a beautiful flower. A beautiful life, that is. That serves as a reminder to the whole world around you of that very first Easter where Jesus rose from the dead and immediately started scattering seeds of new life into the hearts and minds of his people. And so the question I'd like to leave you with as you go this morning is when you look at the garden that is your heart, that inner room, that garden, right? Early church, they'd look at Adam and Eve. They were gardeners. They'd be like, all of us have a garden. It's our heart. And when you look at that garden, is it perhaps time to do some weeding of things that are contrary to Christ and holding new life back? Is it time for that? Is it also perhaps time to do some tilling, meaning to break up the hardness that almost always develops over the course of time? We've got to keep breaking up the hardness of our heart. And finally, might it also be time to do some fertilizing and planting of those seeds of grace and truth that are Jesus himself? It is spring after all. It's spring out there. And the whole creation is whispering the good news. Even as God himself is waiting to see what kind of fruit your life will produce. Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, you've poured out your life so that we might become new. You covered our shame and conquered our death. You continue to call and to coax us into the freedom of new life. And yet, God, if we're just being honest this morning, we're still kind of sluggish and slow to surrender that life to you. Uh, So we do pray this morning that by your grace, which is new every morning, you would set us free. God, may this Easter in particular be one of the means by which you raise us up to a new and better life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.